Welcome to Value Investing, the Starvine Way, where my goal is to help you learn more about value investing and compounding wealth with a long-term focus. We will accomplish this by sharing a mix of monologues and conversations. I'm your host, Stephen Coe, founder of Starvine Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as investment advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek advice that reflects their personal financial situation. Are you one of those who wish you'd known about Danner or Corporation in the 1980s, bought a few shares, and then just forgotten about it for the next three decades? Danaher may not be as well known as Berkshire Hathaway, but compare the price graphs as far back as possible, and it can be seen that Danaher has provided the higher return of the two. At the crux of the company's multi-decade success is the Danaher Business System, or DBS. This is a system of doing business that was originally inspired by the Toyota production system. Danaher evolved that system, applied it first to its manufacturing businesses, and then to many different types of business models. I had the privilege of speaking to Mark Deluzio, who was DBS's principal architect and was in charge of implementing the system across the company. Mark has since founded Lean Horizons, a consulting firm that has helped firms employ lean management since 2001. He is the author of a book released in April 2020 called Flatlined, which I have read and strongly recommend to anyone interested in how a business can be improved. Mark is also the founder of Brave, a non-profit organization that assists military veteran entrepreneurs with existing or new businesses. Mark, I really enjoyed your book, Flatlined. But for the benefit of our listeners, what is a lean transformation and the Danaher business system? I think when most people hear the word lean, they naturally think of severe cost cuts. It's funny because, quite frankly, the whole notion of Teashiono creating the Toyota production system, of which lean is where the, that's the foundation of lean was about reducing costs because they needed to compete with their counterparts in the United States, the big giants, the General Motors of the world, the Chrysler's, the Fords. And it really was a cost issue back then, but it had evolved. The Toyota production system had evolved into what we now today call respect for people. And when they say respect for people, it's really, I like to kind of characterize it as respect for humanity, which all your stakeholders are basically accounted for and employees, customers, shareholders, environment, society, that type of thing, the community that you live in, even your suppliers. And believe it or not, even Toyota talks about their competition, that they need to respect their competition. How many companies have you heard that think that way? And there's a lot of reasons for that. Lean has gotten a black eye from that respect because many CEOs would want to use it to just cut heads and reduce costs. I will not work with a company if that's their objective. If they cannot make a no layoff policy mandate because of lean improvements, I won't work with them because I am not. If if you if you just use it to cut your your resources and cut heads, after you've actually asked them to give you their input and then you let them go, that's just immoral in my opinion. The whole idea should be to build a cost structure and great service, great quality, great lead times, great products to grow your business, not to cut to the bone. You cannot cut your way to prosperity. And so L-E-A-N, lean, has gotten a black eye, meaning less employees are needed. That's kind of what people think about. And that's wrong. And so we can't think that way. And the whole, because of abuse that has occurred 
over the course of time, that's exactly the black eye that Lean has gotten. So the Danaher business system really is Danaher's way of taking the best practices from Toyota and other endeavors, if you will, and transforming their company to be more customer focused, more employee focused, more shareholder. Obviously, if you do those things right, your shareholders are going to be taken care of. And so creating value for all constituencies really is what that's all about. The Danaher business system got its start with a good injection of the Toyota production system, where I personally had got to work with, and there's still one of the guys that's still my mentor, the originators, which were Tayashi Ono's lieutenants, those are the guys that we brought to the United States and introduced them here first. And we started the modern lean movement, one of the divisions called Jake Break up in Connecticut, which I was a part of. So then I was asked to take what we did at Jake Break as we turned that company around and do it on a Danaher level. Our endeavor, Stephen, was not to create the best manufacturing company, which is what we were. Our endeavor was to create the best enterprise, not just not just manufacturing, right? So we wanted to become an enterprise-wide. That's why we changed the name from the Danaher production system to the Danaher business system. So it really is an eclectic system that talks about leadership. It talks about based on a set of principles, but then you get right down to the granularity of it and you get to the point where it's all about the fundamental tools that you would use to drive out waste. And there's all kinds of different forms of waste and approve efficiency and take out the disrespect because processes that have a lot of problems, a lot of rework is disrespectful for the people that have to run them. And if you're not asking them for their input, as the, they're the best consultants in the world. So if you're not asking your ground floor people closest to the work to solve problems and to actually give you their ideas, then you're never going to optimize the organizations. The Danaher business system is all about that. It's very technical. It's also very philosophical and everything else in between. And on the topic of respect, it just seems like such a common sense thing to require. But from the sounds of it, it is a problem on the wider scale. Can you share with us how Danaher takes this seriously and how they institutionalize respect? Well, look, I haven't been with Danaher for quite some time now, but no company is perfect at it. And that includes Danaher. Just because you say it's important does not mean you treat it that way. And I was always one that looked at behaviors, not what people said. So to Ronald Reagan, where he said, trust, but verify. And, you know, when you look at all these websites, you pull up any company in the world today and their stated list of core values is up there. And a lot of them start to look the same after a while. But those values have to really be backed up by fundamental processes that allow you to actually self-actualize in respect to those values. If you tell me that problems need to be solved at the close to the closest level where the work gets done, but you don't have a problem solving process and you don't afford people the time to solve problems and give them the resources that they need, whether it be technical or whatever, then all that is is a slogan. If you say that as a leader, your number one job is to develop your own people, but you have no methodology to develop somebody's career, and you don't afford them the time to get the experience in other endeavors, then it's a slogan. I remember asking one group how if they thought that was important for leadership, and they said yes. And I asked all of them, I said, how many people here have a career development plan? Nobody. So it's a slogan. So there's countless examples like that, that those values really are nice to have, but if you don't work on them and actually try to improve, because nobody's going to be 100% on day one. Matter of fact, you know, 100 years from now, you won't be 100%. But you try to get better in the, in that regard, right? You try to get better as to how you behave to those stated values. 
And therein lies what the definition of culture is, because that's really how do you, how does the organization behave? And that's the culture, not what they say. Everybody says this and all that. Now, one of the things I found is that many companies are so disrespectful for their people, but that's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is they don't recognize that they are. Tashi Ono, again, going back to him, the father of the Toyota production system had a saying. He said, no problem is problem. That's the problem. You don't know you have a problem. And so, so many companies today talk a really good game, think they're being respectful, but they never ask their constituents, whether it's the customers or whether it's their employees or what have you, as to how they're doing in that regard. At the end of the day, no problem is problem. They don't even recognize that they're disrespecting people. Can you tell us what are the consequences, and I'm sure you've seen many examples, of when there is a lack of respect for employees? Well, a lot of consequences. One is you'll you'll have an incredible amount of turnover because people don't leave, leave bad companies. They leave bad leaders. And if your leaders are behaving badly, you're going to leave, no, number one. Number two is it creates all kinds of waste of effort uh, within the company where people aren't focused on their job or their customer. They're focused on survival and making sure that your back is covered and making sure that you know, if I don't trust you and you're working with me, I'm going to spend an inordinate amount of time protecting myself because I think you're going to end up screwing me, quite frankly, excuse my language. But And so I've got to spend time now on that instead of really focusing in on on my customers. So, you know, I, I was with one big company that was a client of mine. And half the time that the leaders there spent time doing PowerPoint presentations to their boss to justify how great they were. I swear to God, it's like, oh my God, and they were really good at PowerPoint, let me tell you. They even had their own font that they used. So that's not good. And 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 that when you start doing that, people don't take risks. They don't give you their input and they're afraid of failure. And everybody's kind of pensive and they're and they're just kind of sitting back, waiting to be told what to do. And that's not a good thing. There's all kinds of other consequences as well, but that's some of them right there. Going back to Jake Break, which is where it all really started for Danaher and Art Byrne, your ex-colleague. Now, he wrote the foreword to your book. And for our listeners, I think it's important to frame this for Jake Break. So again, for this is Art Byrne's writing here from the foreword about what was achieved at Jake Break. Sales grew from 65 to $220 million in the first 10 years without adding any physical space and only 25 additional people. Breaks per man hour grew from 3 to 35 Inventory turns went from two times to 25 times. Lead time dropped from 85 days to two days. And operating income margin went from 4% to 25% or over that. Those are astounding numbers, and uh, they almost seem impossible. So what kinds of tools were used to, say, decrease lead time from 85 to two days? Well, you know, you could talk about the tools. A lot of people like to start, but you really have to start about leadership's thought process and the mental principles that you think about before you enact the tools. The tools are a mechanism to, to get things done in that regard. But if the framework of how you think as leaders isn't there, it doesn't matter what tool you use. So start talking about the principles. The first one really is respect people. And at a time in the old days, Jake Break was a, a, an industrial unionized company. And these operators come in, all 500 of them, and we would have them to hang their brains on a hook before they came to work. And then when they left, they could take their brains home because all we had them do is push a green button all day. We never asked for their ideas. So when you start talking about improvement, 
your best consultants, even though I run a consulting company, best consultants are the guys doing the work and ladies doing the work. Closer you can get to the work, what the Japanese call gemba, better quality thinking you're going to have. But it has to be done in a framework of principles. So if the leadership's principles are wrong, they want to continue to to build in batch and not one piece flow. They insist that quality has to be assured before you pass the part or service on to the next customer or internal customer. If you don't have all these principles, and I talk a lot about those in mind, then the tools don't work because you'll violate the principles. Now, as far as what we did, we had a very big batch and queue company where all the machining was done in one area. Another department did all the testing. Uh, We had all the components in one area. So all these different batch areas would make batches of product, ship them to the stock room. If we're lucky, they got sent out again. Many of them died as obsolete materials. And then we would continue to process these big batches throughout the factory. Well, we totally blew that up. Almost literally, we blew up the stock room and created value streams and cellularization with one piece flow so that you're producing one part at a time to what we call attack time, which is a component of a very key tool in lean called standard work. Uh, one of the three components of standard work. And you're making to customer demand. That means you have to be able to change over your equipment quicker. You have to assure quality. Your uptime on your equipment has to be there. Those kind of things. And of course, Steve, you know, along with the accounting changes that we made, we blew away all the traditional accounting, cost accounting measures that we got taught in school. Well, at least I got taught, you know, absorption accounting. That just promotes putting your inventory and your cost on the balance. And yeah, it's going to give you a favorable absorption credit. So your PL looks really good, but it's not a good thing because you're building inventory. That's cash flow. Two, you're making the wrong stuff and there's no incentive to make the right stuff because you don't want to change over. All that kind of stuff. Purchase price variance. I'll save a nickel and I'm going to get a big purchase price variance. So I'm going to buy six months worth of inventory. Do we do that in our daily lives? We don't do that. So why are we doing it in business? It's because how we get incentivized and compensated. All those things, and this is a few of them that I'm talking about, we threw those notions out. Now, if those principles are not understood, for me, people ask me, CFOs ask me, how did you how did you have the ability to do that? Well, I had supportive leadership, starting with Art Byrne and George Conesaker, Bob Pentland, all those guys supported me. And if, I didn't, if they did not have the framework of the principles of doing the right thing, it never would have happened. You mentioned in the book about the importance of buy-in from the very, very top, not just sending in middle-level manager for training. How do you get that across? I'm, I'm sure you have a lot of CEOs coming to you wanting Dan or her results. How do you get that message across uh, from day one, what it is they have to commit to? Well, you know, number one, when they come to me, they usually say, we've been doing lean for 10 years and we flatline. They always use that word. So I just thought that was a good, a good title of the book because that's what they say. And there are reasons why they flatline. And that's what I talk about in the book. But as far as leadership commitment, when somebody calls and says, hey, we want to do the Danaher business system, the first thing I'll tell you is, no, you can't because you're not Danaher. You have to construct your own approach and your own system to fit your culture, your business. In a lot of regards, you're right. Your business is different. But because all of you guys continue to say your business is different, in that regard, you're all the same. So that's one thing I look for. I always kind of look at the opposite way because it's a natural tendency to to look at the differences and not parties, right? So believe it or not, an an insurance company can learn from the automobile business. I just did a webinar the other day. It's up on YouTube called, But We Don't Make Cars. A CEO told me that of an insurance company. And I said to him, uh, well, thank God you don't, because if you did, 
we'd all be walking. And if you did finally build a car five years from now, I wouldn't get in it. And that's how bad their processes were. And this is a, that was making an unbelievable amount of money. Uh, so they didn't even know how bad they were. Leadership has to understand it's not a spectator sports. One of the problems you see here, Steve, is that people, leaders have gotten to high levels, you know, say vice president, the C-suite, whatever, doing traditional things. Now you're coming along and saying, well, it's not good enough anymore. You can't, you know, what you've done to date to get here is no longer going to get you to where you say you want to go. Uh, you say you want to do lean, you want to do DBS. What they're really saying in a lot of regards is they want Danaher's results, which but Danaher has been one of the most, if not the most profitable industrial company on the, on the, on the planet. When you look at Toyota's return, they have returned roughly 6% per year since 1997 to shareholders. And Danaher is like north of 20%. Danaher's uh, last stated gross profit was 56%. Toyota's is 17%. Toyota is a better comp- better run company, I think, from that regard, a better manufacturer. But when we set out to do the Danaher business system, we did not set out to be the best manufacturing company, although we wanted to excel there. We set out to be the best enterprise. And that's different. Now, not saying Toy's not a bad enterprise. I just think they're in a lousy market. The automotive, it's hard to make money in that market. They're in a bad business. And at the end of the day, I tell, I tell leaders that you cannot expect success by trying to optimize something that's just suboptimal. And the auto industry to me is suboptimal. Airline industry, optimal. <laughs> so you can't make money there. And, and uh, even in good times, okay, never mind COVID, but in good times, it's a bad industry. You have to look at this from a business perspective and say, if I'm making uh, buggy whips or cement life preservers, I could be the best lean company in the world. It doesn't really matter. Now, I will say this, in the respect for people concept, and I think you and I talked about this last time, just because you're a really great financial company with great returns does not make you a great company. Because if you're disrespecting your customers or your employees, you're not a great company. And, the, and I have run into companies like that, that are blown the doors off type results, but they're awful to their people. And that's interesting and then, you bring that point up because uh, as investors, if you ask investors what a, a great company is, you might say something with a high return on capital. Right. But according to you, that's not really quite the right way to think as a long-term investor. So with that, can you fan a bit on what you consider a truly great company? It doesn't matter what I say. It matters what my shareholders say, my employees, my customers, and my shareholders, and the environment, and the community, and society. It, it doesn't matter what I say. It matters what they say. I wrote this thing in the book. It's called The Leanology, which says that it could be a zero-sum game, zero-sum game where one group wins, like shareholders. You really have to start thinking about what are your objectives for your employees and how you can satisfy those objectives and your customers and your shareholders and, and other stakeholders, your suppliers, for example. Your suppliers are a stakeholder. Some people don't think about that. Some The way some big companies treat you as a supplier, and I've been subject to that, is absolutely disrespectful. It took me with one very big company, I won't take care, but 500 days to get paid. They start out with 90-day terms, and they then they pay you in 180. It's just totally disrespectful. Whenever you see any element of disrespect, it usually carries on throughout. To me, a great company isn't because you perform great financially, but I will say that if you don't perform great financially, you're not a great company, in my opinion, because then you are disrespectful holders. You have to win too. I guess when you look at this, uh, you, these goals, Steve, of say employees, customers, and all that, they're conflicting sometimes. 
Because if you satisfy one group, you may dissatisfy another. But I think you have to look at long-term over the course of time. Now, I can argue with you. If I give my employees a raise, I'm taking profits from my shoulder. Well, then again, I say, well, wait a minute. Now, if I, if I don't give my employees a raise, that money is a satisfier, but it's a dissatisfier. They quit. I have attrition. My service customer suffers. So it all ties in. You have to look at it that way, right? You have to, have to say to yourself, yeah, any one decision you make, you can rationalize why you should make it because it will disrespect the group. But you've got to look at it over the long term and say, to yourself, what exactly does this mean long term for my business and for each set of stakeholders? Everybody has to win. And if they don't win, and I'll tell you this, most companies pay lip service to the customers. They think they know what their customers want. And I learned that lesson a long time ago the hard way. When I Hope Motors, we did the first uh, 3P line, which is a real key process by my sensei, Nakao from Toyota. And we had zero defects, Steve, from Bloomfield, Connecticut, to Hino City, Japan. Zero defects. We had 100% on-time delivery to their request day. And I thought, wow, they're going to roll out the red carpet. They're going to have sake. They're going to have songs playing, karaoke. In there, I walked into the purchasing office to have my first meeting. And they had a big list on the wall of 110 suppliers that made, they only had 110 suppliers, by the way, that made the diesel engine. So I'm looking at, and our part went on the diesel engine. I'm looking at this thing up on the top of the list and I'm saying to myself, wow, the name up there, but it's all G characters. So probably wrote Jake breaking and G. That's why I didn't understand it. I'm looking at the list, right? And I go down. I look down on the list. I see my name. We're number 106. Wait a minute. 100% on time delivery mistake. No quality problems. Nothing. You know what they said to me? And I got in a meeting. They said, why am I 106? Your labels outside of your cartons are not always in the exact same place. Like labels. What are you talking about? Labels. Because we put them on by hand. I said, that doesn't affect form, fit, or function, which is a, man- a dumb manufacturing thing to think about. Because that's the engineer on it. Hey, form, fit, or function wasn't affected. So we worry about a label for it. You know what they said to me? They said, Delicious son, if you cannot guarantee the, the quality on the outside of the box, how can you guarantee quality on the inside of the box? <laughs> okay. I did not, I never asked my customer what they wanted. I assumed I knew. But with Hino Motors being a world-class manufacturer that they are, they're part of Toyota, that was a on-time delivery and and quality were just an entree to get in. You had to have that. Now, the labels was like, okay, well, so now I start thinking about this, Steve, and I I say, okay, when I go to a doctor's office and I have to fill out my name six times and I screw up on some insurance thing, they're the guys that are going to do brain surgery on me? Wow, you got to be kidding me. If you can't get the little things right, you're not going to get the big things right. And just to kind of uh, an offshoot on this, the medical industry kills 500,000 people a year in the U.S. due to medical error and infections. Of that 500,000, about 100,000 are infections in hospitals that you went in without that infection and you died from it. Uh, 500, and we're worried about COVID? 500,000 people a year we kill in the medical profession. And nobody's talking about that. That's 1,400 a day, roughly. Nobody's talking about that. So what I'm trying to say is that you think you know what your employees want. So you do all these programs. You never even ask them. So you've got to understand your stakeholders. And uh, we assume that shareholders want returns. Well, that's not all they want. They want a responsible company that doesn't pollute, for example. They want a company that does value diversity. They want, they want other things. Everybody thinks they want the bottom line. And that may be true for some shareholders, not all. So even with that, you know, you can just assume that that they want X, Y, and Z, and they may want A, B, and C, and they don't even know about it. So that's a problem today because we all think we know, and I learned that lesson, like I told you, the hard way. 
for your clients when you consult for them? I assume these are things that you look for immediately or your ability to get the balance right. And I assume that Danaher must have gotten that balance right between customers, employees, and shareholders. What kinds of things can they do to improve in this area? Well, before I even answer that question, I just want to go back on the premise of that question because Danaher was not pristine in that. We had a lot of great principles like blameless environment. Were we always blameless? No, we weren't perfect. It's one thing to set out the the principle, then you have to figure out how to behave towards that principle. Did we always respect our I had a hard time with uh, some of my divisions that wanted to measure on delivery to customer promise date. Well, wait a minute, that's your number. What about request date? If the customer wants it on the 15th and you say, well, I can't get it until the 30th, and then you get it to them on the 30th, and you mark green that you succeeded, they're marking you red. You could say that you succeeded, but not in their eyes. So we were not perfect in that regard. So what I'm trying to say is that as you set these things out, even the great Toyota is not perfect today. The real key is to recognize you're not and that you need to improve. So I came up with a saying at Danaher, continuous improvement is a healthy dissatisfaction with the status quo. I don't care how good you are. And it's hard for companies that are really good, at least financially, or they have a really great brand name and they, and they kind of on their sweatshirt and they walk around in their chest. But you talk to anybody from Toyota, they are humble. And quietly, they'll tell you stink in a nice way. You know, I don't want to say we stink, but they'll think that because they know that pursuit for perfection is never going to get there and you have to continue to prove. And so Anaher was not pristine, not a lot of screw-ups. We disrespected people sometimes. I would tell these people who would ask me about this world-class thing, I'm not going to get in an argument with you about it. I'm not going to discuss it. All I know is that you're not world-class, so get back to work. <laughs> that's how I would handle it. So, And that's important because when you say, okay, well, how do you start? Go back to your question. How do you start with uh, leaders? I first want to assess that mindset because if I see a leader that's defensive, telling you why he sucks because he has good reason for it and doesn't really see through how he can change or she can change, those are he's, unfortunately, but then, then I would say, I don't think this guy has the DNA to do it. It doesn't go any further than that at that point. And so that's a really important thing to think about because if the mindset's not there, even though they say it is, they always say it is, but then you start listening to them and watching how they behave, forget it. You're hitting the head against the wall. And is that the key reason behind why lean transformations are not easy to implement? I mean, that we look at the landscape of companies, very few, I believe, have really implemented it that successfully. I would probably say that there's a lot that goes, I talk about five things in my book about why you flatline and why you don't do it. But probably the biggest thing, Steve, is the whole respect for people thing. At the end of the day, that's it. If you don't have that as a framework, then you're just not going to do well in any other endeavor. Right? That's probably the biggest one, which is a problem, by the way, with private equity, because with private equity, it's a short-term game. So when you start talking about somebody who runs a PE firm, the, the single other word out of their mouth is EBITDA, 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 EBITDA. And they'll talk a game about culture. They don't want to invest in culture. They sell the company in three years. What do they care? So that's a bad thing for businesses sometimes. And I'm not saying all private equity companies are like that, but many are, and I've come across those. And it's really tough to talk to them about just that, about culture and about you know respect for people and things like that. So that's probably the number one reason. There's a lot of other reasons too. For example, 
not tying your lean initiatives in your strategic endeavors uh, is a problem. Another one is that we always are looking for like a quick fix. There's no quick fix, a lot of hard work. It's fun work and it's rewarding work, but it's a lot of hard work. This conversation with a client a couple of weeks ago, they want to kind of transform their company, but they don't want to do anything different in terms of how they operate. And I told them, I said, you know, transformation is not a nine to five job. Sorry. So you can't expect, you know, as they say, you know, do the same thing over and over again and expect different results. Those are the kind of things everybody's looking for a silver bullet. My consulting industry is terrible in that regard because all these people are trying to revent the means and the owners of the world with a joke, confusing the heck out of people out there today. If I was starting today, I wouldn't know what to do. When we started, we had the purest. We had the actual guys that created the Toyota production system, Jitsu talks about this, Art Burn, and they were it. There was nobody else out there to screw us up. And then Six Sigma came along, and that really screwed a lot of people up. Because Six Sigma is a statistical problem-solving set of tools that you use when you need it, but you don't build a cult around a tool. It's kind of like me saying I'm a, I'm a home builder, and we're going to solve, GE did this, and God rest Jack Welch. You talk lean. I had some guys at GE tell me that if, they, if Jack caught him doing lean in the mid-'90s, they would have fired him. You would have fired them. And actually, they brought in Shingajitsu up in Rutland, Vermont at their air- aircraft business. And I know the guys that did that. Really great guys. You can't expect to solve all your problems using one tool. It's like me telling you as a, as a home builder, hey, Dave, uh, we're going to build a house this week, and you can only use a hammer. But I got I got to dig a hole for a foundation. Now you got to use a hammer. Well, but, boss, I got I to gotta cut, cut wood. Now you have to use a hammer, right? And that's kind of what they did, which is really dumb as smart as they are. So what happened was, because Six Sigma was such an institution, it didn't allow for any evolution of thinking. And so their employees were kind of depressed. They had some unbelievable people I've met there that were just not allowed to evolve because they were already had the framework with Sigma that that's how we're doing business, guys. Now, all these quick fixes that are coming out today in the consulting world, in my industry, if you will, is just to sell consulting services and, to, and try to different. Everybody wants to become the next Tashiono or Deming. It's not going to happen. It might happen, but it's, come on. This stuff works, but it's basic. I have a chapter in there about sticking to the basics. How, you know, if you look at the bottom of the Toyota production system house, and one of the things that's on there is standard work. I walk into companies that say they're doing lean. What's your standard work? Well, it doesn't really apply to us. Oh, it doesn't. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. How many Kaizen's are you doing? It's another one that's on the house. Oh, we do one a quarter. So you want to become Mr. Universe and go to the gym once a quarter. That's kind of what you tell me, right? But, you know, it's just a lot of lip service. You know, I tell people that it's not like, you know, going to Home Depot and buying a refrigerator, bringing it home, plugging it in, and 20 minutes later, got cold drinks. It doesn't work with the notion that the Americans want, you know, and if you think about Toyota, it's about small incremental changes. It's the, it's the tortoise and the hare. Americans want the, not to say you're not going to get a breakthrough out of some of the, but they want the quick fix. And there's no quick fix. This is not. So those are all issues that you see. There's others too, but those are all issues that I talk about in the book and how we got to really think differently about how we lead and think about people in particular, right? Definitely, it sounds like a lot of work and no quick fixes. But what really I find fascinating is just the fact that this can be applied across different industries not just manufacturing, and you've helped your clients do this. Danaher clearly has with the expansion to life sciences. So I'm really curious. Uh, we hear about a lot of the tools that work in manufacturing, like the, the one-piece flow, for example. I'm just curious which tools surprisingly transferred well into service environments. 
Interestingly enough, and again, that, that one podcast I did on insurance and, uh, and manufacturing, this one particular company that I worked with took 250 days to process a claim that took about four hours to process, right? Uh, their lead time was 250 days. You could flow, one piece flow, a claim or an underwriting policy just like you can a car. The tools might be different on your circumstance based on your injury, but the principles are always the same. I don't care if you're in a lemonade stand or making jet end, it doesn't matter. And that's where people miss because they say, oh, I can't apply this particular tool. We don't do just manufacturing. I work in a shop. I hear that all the time. I work in a job shop, so lean doesn't apply. Okay, well, my, my first question to you is, do you not have waste in your job shop? Well, yeah, we have waste. Then how can you say lean doesn't apply? That's what lean's all about. So everybody has this paradigm that if you're not like Toyota, you don't make cars, then you can't do lean, which is cool. We use values in service industries, right? We use uh, standard work in some cases. And, and one of the things that's universal everywhere, Steve, is problem solving. That means cycle of plan, do, check, act. It, that is a fundamental cornerstone. I, I remember going to Toyota in the early 90s, and one of the executives there told me, he said, all companies have problems. The companies that know how to permanently solve those problems are the ones that are going to advance. It, most companies fix the problem, but don't solve the problem. Okay, like I'll give you one real easy example about I was working with a client and the uh, PC board went on one of their machines and shut the whole thing down for a few days. Well, come to find out their op, their maintenance guys were not trained on the, on the PC board aspect of that machine. So they thought this was to replace the PC board. They expedited the board from the supplier and they put a new board in and they got the ground. That's not the fix. The fix is your whole total preventive maintenance program. How did, what PC board? It could be a pump. It could be a motor. I don't know what, but it's really your framework of your process that failed. The PC board didn't fail. You failed as far as well, the process failed because well, you didn't have a process. So to solve the root cause of that problem is not to expedite the PC board and get the machine back running again. The issue is framework and your whole process of total maintenance, how you prevent those errors in those problems in the first place. And now with IoT devices and everything else, you should have a lot of predictability of the problems that you're going to have. When that when that machine and the wires start heating up and all that, your devices actually be sensing that, hey, you got a problem here. It's heating up and it's out of a parameter here and you better go look at that PC board. But that's the problem, not the PC board. It's the difference between solving a problem and fixing a problem. When it comes to behind-the-scenes stretch goals, you and I talked about this a bit last time. But from the outside, uh, the investors just sees what the company communicates. So to be really world-class, can you touch upon just how important it is to have those breakthrough objectives for a company? It's extremely important. But the key here, Steve, is to decide what they are uh, because they have different flavors, if you will. The iPod revolutionized the whole darn music industry. It is turned it on its head. I'm not saying every single break you have is going to be that magnitude, but there's examples to think about. When you are now, if you're in an industry where everybody's, you know, taking 30 days to deliver and you can do it in two, all of a sudden you're going to come up, right? Everything else being equal. So breakthroughs happen in a lot of different ways, but because we sometimes break those into our, our compensation, there's a tendency not to stretch and, and not to have a sense of urgency to get them done soon. Sometimes the breakthrough is a speed of getting things done as opposed to, I, I was a company, we're going to, we're actually changing the whole factory layout uh, and 
we want to implement our proposal in January of 2022. Like, guys, if this was Dana, who would have been done by the end of November this year, what are you doing? You know, you, you can't do that. It's just that mindset that you have to have in order to even facilitate breakthrough. Like, for example, from the Japanese, minimum 50% improvement in quality per year, 50% per year, minimum. And sometimes not any, that's not even good enough. Those are the kind of things that we think about, and it's a mindset more than anything else. Mark, I see that you founded an organization called Brave. Can you please tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, Brave uh, stands for Business Reviews and Advisors for Veteran Entrepreneurs. It's a free service. It's not a 501c3 because I want no money coming through this. This is all volunteer time, my time, and I've got a team of people that help me, uh, some very great people that uh, have great talents. And our mission, Steve, is to take a veteran. And by the way, we will also work with uh, first responders, fire, police, EMTs, people of that ilk, if you will, primarily focused on veterans. And we help veterans either start a business coming out of the service. We help them with running an existing business and making it better. Or we will help them find careers and career counseling. And actually, two of the people that are tied into my, my brave organization are recruiters which helps these guys get jobs. But it's interesting because I've got the number, when I was at Danaher, the number two guy in the human resources group, guy named Bob Piazza, is on my team. And Bob has a 10-point process. When a veteran comes to us and says, hey, help me write my resume. Well, that's step six in his process, okay? It's not step one. And so he goes through all kinds of things to figure out, you know, what is your passion? What, you know, how do you demilitarize your resume? Because they come out thinking about all the tactical things that they could do, but they don't think about the intangibles like leadership, problem solving, planning, project management, supervision, leadership. They don't think about that. And a good example is my son, who's a veteran, says, God, they had me watch a guy pee into a cup for a drug test. You could think about that in two different ways. And the way I think about it is, wait a minute, that guy that's doing that test is going to operate a multi-million dollar piece of equipment that could kill thousands. They entrusted you to do that drug test. Okay, there's got to be something about that. I got to know the veteran community quite well after my boys both joined the military. And unfortunately, my son, Stephen, in 2010 was killed in Afghanistan, which I got to know a lot of the veterans and started working with them. And so uh, this is the kind of way that I give back to the veterans who have really you know, fought to uh, and by the way, it's not just people who are in combat. I, any any veteran I work with uh, doesn't matter to me. And this is the way I kind of give back to them to because uh, I've got a, a certain skill set. I was lucky enough to have great experience. I made a lot of mistakes, and those mistakes I don't want my veterans to to make. So so I do this for free, and uh, and so does everybody else. And it's all about helping just giving back a little bit and changing a couple of lives. And we've had some pretty good luck with it so far. So the website is the number four, thebrave.org, number four, thebrave.org. And that's where we, uh, we do our, our work with, uh, like I said, veterans. We'll write strategic plans, financial plans, all kinds of things we do. I ask them really tough questions. Sometimes I'm a real pain in their butt. But I'd rather have me be that guy than having a banker refuse them on a loan. That's what we do. Just something that we uh, we do part-time, which is, takes a lot of time, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. Looks like we're running out of time, but I just wanted to say real honor to have you on the show, Mark, and I hope to have you on again shortly. 
There's so much more to talk about with, with lean, and I think we scratched the surface, but I'd be more than happy to come back. Okay. Well, thank you very much. You bet. Thank you. If you would like to learn more about Mark Deluzio and his firm, Lean Horizons, please visit www.leanhorizons.com. His new book, Flatlined, Why Lean Transformations Fail and What to Do About It, is available on Amazon. And as Mark said, his organization that provides business advice to veteran entrepreneurs, called Brave, can be found at 4, the number 4, thebrave.com, forthebrave.com. I really enjoyed speaking with Mark and look forward to having him again on the show. Whether you are an operator of a company or a long-term investor in stocks looking in from the outside, listening to him makes you think about what it takes to become a great company. Please don't hesitate to write a review on Apple Podcasts as that helps us get the word out there. And of course, subscribe, like, and share with your friends. 